if we both get uh, fewer listeners in the future, we know what we did wrong. <laughs> well, we could just uh, turn it around and you could just interview me instead. Actually, yeah, yeah, I'll just, yeah, exactly. <laughs> just do what we do best. <laughs> All right, maybe we should get started? Sure. All right, thanks everybody for joining. Um, um, for those of you who don't know Ronnie, Ronnie Shotah, um, but I think most of you probably do know him um, from Twitter and, and YouTube. He, um, he used to do a very popular walking tour of Beirut called uh, Walk Beirut. Um, and it was a tour of uh, history and architecture, culture of Beirut which was very, very popular. Unfortunately, I never got to do it because uh, I think, Ronnie, you stopped about a year and a half ago because of COVID. You know, I, the last tour I gave was maybe a day or two before the protests began. So it was, it was mid-October uh, 2019. Okay. okay. And then you jumped to your next hobby, which um, uh, is interviewing people. Uh, just you know, talking to people from different uh, different backgrounds, different uh, places, different expertises. You know, the funny thing is, when I was writing the description for this room, I was like, all right, Ronnie has interviewed dozens of people. And then I went into your YouTube channel, and you have 250 episodes on there, and you've only been doing this for one year. Well, okay, no. So basically, you interview somebody every two days. <laughs> You know, you're yeah. I, the, I I started it about two years ago, but it really took off during the protests. I was here, and uh, I had a co-host who was more or less living in Martyrs Square. I mean, she spent days on end, just doing daily interviews, daily recordings. So that's that's really when it took off. But but prior to that, uh, you know, you're right. I I was doing maybe once a week, once every two weeks. So the number accelerated. In particular, during the protests. Oh, interesting. Well, I guess we're all stuck at home, so doing uh, <laughs> interviews uh, by Zoom is, uh, or Skype is, uh, is you know very productive. So it's called the uh, Beirut Banyan. You can uh, follow Rodney on Twitter or or his YouTube page. He really has just there's a wealth of content there, just interviews of all types of people. I don't know how you got some of these people to come and. and and sit with you for an hour or two um, to do this. But, uh, you know, I, uh, I haven't watched all of them, uh, but I've watched <laughs> a lot of them, and, uh, and they're very good. So I, I suggest people go and, uh, and check out a few of them. Um, how did you get into that? Well, Why did, is it because the walking tour stopped and uh, well, actually, you know, looking for something else? There, no, I'll, I'll tell you. When I first started giving the tour, which is now it's almost 15 years ago, so I've been doing it on and off for, for a long time, uh, I realized early on that you can't, tell the whole, you can't tell the whole story in one afternoon. There's just no way. I actually tried giving a seven-hour tour when I started, which I thought would cover almost all the terrain. And I realized early on that this was punishment because most people didn't want to walk for seven hours. And at times, you know, it gets very hot. 
Beirut is not always a pleasant city to simply stroll around. So I decided to make it shorter. And also, I, I realized that there's topics you can't easily explain on a walking tour. And I'll give you an example. Um, I wanted to get into the mind of Zia Dwede, the, the filmmaker, and his passion for filmmaking and his childhood growing up in Hamra. There's only really one way to do that, which is to actually go and approach him and, and see if he'd be interested in letting somebody access his mind. And we sat down for 90 minutes talking about his childhood growing up in Ras Beirut and his relationship to Lebanon and that complicated relationship. So I, I think that the curiosity started there and, and the tour is storytelling. It's not really a walking tour per se. It's not, um, it's not a sort of a tour guide that sort of points at things and you keep walking from stop to stop. It's more narrating what I think is the best story ever told, which is our story, the city. So I, uh, I, I extrapolated from that, and I decided maybe, the, maybe a podcast is the right way to do it. And the first, the first hundred or so episodes were just audio. It's just audio, narration, stories, long-form conversations. It wasn't until COVID that I really started doing video, because I realized most people were at home, and they want to watch things on their phones, on their laptops. But it's born out of a curiosity in storytelling, and going as far as you can in a complicated place like Beirut. So that's really where it sprang from. And, and Ziad Dwedi is the first episode. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm yeah, talking... Yeah. Well, yeah, the... Uh, oh, it's okay, people want to hear you talk. So, uh, so it's, it's funny for a, a place like, uh, like Lebanon, where you know, storytelling has, uh, at least historically, kind of rooted... Um, and the culture of this place and oral traditions and things like this, where it seems like kind of in the modern era, that's gone away and we don't really have a, a shared memory of a lot of, uh, like, you know, I don't really know the memory, the, the, the story of Tripoli. I know kind of the basics, uh, you know, I, uh, but this kind of idea of the, the narrative of the place, the story, kind of disappeared in the last few decades. Do you, well, do you feel the same? Well, I mean, I think you don't even have to go as far as Tripoli. You just walk around Beirut. And for me, the most rewarding stop on the tour is Martyrs Square. And Martyrs Square, we know it. I think most of the people listening right now were in Martyrs Square during the protests. So we know what it is. We know the statue. We know how to get there. But if you asked any of us, what did Martyr Square look like 30 years ago? Or for that matter, what did it look like 60 years ago? Or, or let alone before modern Lebanon, what did the Ottoman Bidij look like? I think it's impossible, unless you're actually walking in Beirut and you have somebody trying to bring it to life. I think it, it just goes unnoticed. And I, I remember uh, Lebanese, forget foreigners, Lebanese sort of wondering why Martyr's Square is a parking lot as opposed to a bustling city center. So I, I completely agree. This sort of, the ability to maybe deliver collective memory today, it's a challenge. And I mean, some people are very talented at it. And we lost somebody, you know, Lukman Slim, I think, should be better known for his work there as opposed to... Uh, I mean, he's, he is the collective memory person when it comes to recent stuff. 
But even, you know, people that I, I think a lot of us know, Mun al who helped save uh, Beit Beirut, the Barakat building on the Green Line. It's a challenge. I, th- I think it's an extraordinary challenge. But when you get it right, it's extremely rewarding. And I think that's where my, that's why I kept doing it, is because it, it, it feels like you're doing something for a city that deserves better and a people in Beirut that should know exactly what we've lost over the years. And maybe, maybe it plants the seeds for sort of uh, honoring that memory for, for later. And I, I, Martyr Square is an easy example, but I mean, I think a lot of Beirut today, for many reasons in particular the last few months, even post-blast, we, we, we've lost more and more. So this is an end, sort of, a, yeah. it's not something that we I've stopped. Absolutely. And I think when I started giving the tour, I realized what, what gets people hooked is when the story's linked. And I had a way of talking about, I mean, it's funny now to say this, but a stable currency, <laughs> the al lira peg, and tying that in to something that's maybe irre- irrelevant to that, t- tying that into, let's say, Ottoman architecture. There's a, there's a way to kind of lure somebody in to complicated stuff. And I think I, I think I found a way to do it by just never letting the stories uh, stop. It's almost like an evolving story. And, and the first 15 episodes of the podcast, they're literally conversations that link back and forth. So Ziad Dwayri is the first, and then it goes from there to another subject that's linked to his filmmaking. And I thought that's always the best way to do it. Keep people engaged rather than, rather than not so interested in their history. Because history may not be that interesting unless you have it, I think, done in a way that's extremely entertaining. And uh, I think that's also maybe a craft. It has to be done the right way. And I, I think that's perhaps why a lot, a lot of us don't really care about history. It can be boring. Well, can you tell us the more interesting stories that you would tell on your tour? Oh, I'm, I'm, I mean, one, one stop I love trying, trying to bring back to life is Wadi Abu Jmil. This is a neighborhood that's completely gone. It's, the, it's a huge chunk of downtown Beirut. I think you can grow up. I think you, can, you could have grown up in the uh, post-war era and never have known what that neighborhood was. And... Honestly, I think, I think that's the mo- that was the most rewarding stop. We always talk about mosaic. We talk about, uh, we talk about our sort of uh, diverse whatever. We're a number of communities that live side by side and all that stuff. The truth is we were that. I don't think we are that anymore, at least to the degree that we once were. And Wedi Abu Jmir was a bustling Jewish quarter in the heart of Beirut. A, a massive synagogue is still there. It's actually right below the Sarai, where we were protesting for the last <laughs> year and a half, just behind. I mean, there's a giant synagogue that I think, I could be wrong here, but I think most Lebanese don't know where it is or they've never seen it. That's, well, it's off limits now. You can't even get to it. Exactly. It's off limits. And uh, that's, that's our history. That's, that's a huge part of the city that's been more or less bulldozed to the ground. So having the ability to take people on a brief journey 
into what was once a crowded neighborhood, predominantly one community that is no longer part of Lebanon, I think it's fantastic. And I think it, it allows some, some uh, the curiosity is there. It's, there's no prejudice. I never sensed any sort of, uh, any hostility. On the contrary, it's almost like this can't be true. There's no way this was once what it was. And there's, um, I think that's the kind of loss that, that, that we've suffered. And this is really, it's our generation. The, the earlier generation, they, they remember this stuff. And on, I, I think that's why they, they complain the most. It's because they've seen what was robbed. We don't necessarily know. We, we didn't grow up with it. They saw it. So that I, I saw my, my ability maybe to just help bring it back to life in a, in a very limited way, in my own way. You know, there was uh, in the suit in Tripoli, you also, the, uh, you've probably been there, Ronnie. Um, the entrance to the suit is this big uh, uh, space right before you get into the alleys. And that whole area was also a Jewish neighborhood in Tripoli which I had no idea it was until my grandma uh, a few months ago. There's no remnants of, uh, of kind of the old face of, of that neighborhood now. Oh, I mean, you, it's all new, basically. You walk through this. Nothing, um, you know, gives you any idea about what this neighborhood used to be 60, 70, 80 years ago. Absolutely. And I know, I mean, it's maybe it's one example of many, but I think it is worth exploring it even further. I think, if I'm not mistaken, it was January last year, or maybe February, the, during one of the storms at Sodico, a, a retainer wall broke. And the Jewish cemetery, which is still there, sort of fell to the road. Tari Shem. So there, I mean, you're walking down the street, and then suddenly it's sort of this, this part of your past is destroyed in a flood, and it's exposed. And it's quite tragic. And again, this is one example, but I think, I think there is a, uh, I mean, there's a permanent damage done when, when, you're, when you're not able to care for your own. And uh, I, I think that was something we got wrong a long time ago. And I, I mean, I did an episode about Wadi Abu Jamil. I was actually, I was lucky. I got to meet several Lebanese Jews abroad who were happy to talk about their childhood growing up, but it's a, it's a Beirut I cannot relate to. And even, even the photos, the, the memories, the scent, or the sounds, or everything that they describe from the minute details, it's not part of our current history. And it's a real tragedy. But that's, maybe that's how the podcast took off, at least in a personal way for me, that you can play with this medium and you can actually maybe, you can take people to different places just by audio narration. So in a way, I thought it would be great to go further and actually talk to inhabitants of this community in a 90-minute episode and just sort of create a story. So that's something you can take from the tour and then expand on, which I, which I love doing. Yeah, <clears throat> I, gotta, I gotta look that episode up. I went to... Uh to grad school with a, a Lebanese a Jewish woman who doesn't really remember Lebanon, but still feels like she had such a strong connection to the place, the food, the language, uh, you know, just very Lebanese in her mannerisms and her, you know, the culture that she associates with 
um, yeah, it's a shame. And people, you know, I think don't really appreciate to what extent um, a country can change, not just through, you know, the civil war that we went through, through the neglect of the last, you know, 30 years and no preservation of our architecture and history, but even now going into a economic crisis that on its own can change, the, you know, the culture of a place. So, you know, it's, you're, you're kind of fighting against the tide by trying to preserve the history. And I think at some point, you know, the records that you're keeping are going to be records maybe that a generation or two of Lebanese may, you know, they may listen to your podcast, they may listen to your narration, and they may also not recognize uh, the Lebanon that they're, that they're hearing about. Uh, without, okay, I'm going to try to not stay too negative. I'm going to try to go to the positive route now. <laughs> what I also enjoy, and this is maybe, this is both selfish, but also I think it's cathartic, is to pull out of the current situation from time to time. Because we, in the last few months, in the last year, I think we've seen too much damage. Uh, it's too much for one generation. So the if you're able to just pull people out a bit and maybe expose the good stuff from time to time, I think it's also, it's, it's healing. And uh, this is also maybe a silly example, but I mean, it's, I walk, I grew up on bliss. I mean, I am Ras Beiruti, Anna, even though I pretend to be an Ashrafi guy today, but I am Ras Beiruti, Anna. Well, I used to walk up and down Bliss Street. And I mean, a lot of us know that there's this odd-looking tree at the corner of Bliss and, and Clemenceau at the entrance to AUB, at the medical gate, this strange tree that is out of place. And even sort of honoring that kind of obscure tree, I think, is a treat. And you can talk about an obscure Protestant missionary named Daniel Bliss, who finds himself in Hamra, this fresh, fertile topsoil of Ras Beirut, at a time when Hamra was not the city center. Hamra was the suburbs of Beirut. It was not in the, it, it, this, was, this was beyond the vicinity. So you had this land that could be acquired. And then these Indian trees that are planted, they're not Lebanese. These are trees of knowledge. And the Banyan tree is not native to the Middle East. AUB has plenty of them. And I think LAU may have one or two as well. But these are, trees of knowledge planted at institutions for learning, and even, even the name, the Syrian Protestant College. I mean, if you go in that direction and you go back, this is not long ago. This is 150 years ago. You kind of recreate something that I think we take for granted now. Why the hell do we speak English in Ras Beirut? And why are we walking down a street called Bliss Street to begin with? And why do you have these odd Indian trees there? So I, I like that stuff too. It doesn't always have to be about, uh, you know, the, uh, the financial collapse, even though that is a pressing concern. Or it doesn't even have to be about the political paralysis, even though that is destroying the country. But from time to time, I think it's nice to go into a dreamlike state and, and look back a bit. And I, that's honestly, that's how I used to give the tour. I, I would start at the banyan tree. And I, I would end at Samir Asir in downtown Beirut. And it was, for me, it was so important that 
these types of heroes in my mind, they're not just assassinated journalists, they're heroes. This type of very persuasive storyteller whose statue is there in downtown, it's a shame when Lebanese don't know who this man is. And I, I, I made it a point that you have to honor the people that sacrifice their lives sharing Lebanon's story for us. So I, I, made, it, I made it certain that you, the tour would always end with a storyteller and, and, and one that I, I deeply admired. I was fortunate to have met once. Uh, I think it was the right kind of tribute to Beirut as well. And uh, the tour would end there. I would end it at 2005. I thought going into recent history, the real recent stuff was maybe too complicated and maybe too fresh. So I left kind of the story hanging at a moment. And I don't know if this maybe get border, borderline romantic here, but I ended it with the, with the, I ended it with the protest that, that erupted in 2005. And I thought we could just leave it there. This is, mind you, this is before the You Stink protests, this is before October 2019. So I thought, let's leave it at a moment where Lebanese are trying to reclaim their history once more. And the tour kind of would just, it would stop there. But of course, things Why have changed. So, sorry? Why specifically Samir He, in my mind, not just the best storyteller of our modern era and in Lebanese context, uh, not just a fantastic author and writer and professor and journalist, uh, a, a decent, humble man who I think should have been the future of this country. A, a Lebanese who was diverse himself, Syrian, Palestinian, with a French passport, who lived in Beirut and was fully Lebanese, and Lebanese on his terms, a man without that much money, but pursuing politics, that's the kind of politician I want, a, a, a protester, a man that you would see on the streets during the protests. And it's not an accident that not that long ago, a few months ago, and actually even a few weeks ago, people were gathering in Samir Asir Square once more. So that's, that's the gift he left us with, which is, yes, we deserve better, and we don't have to necessarily subscribe to a permanent abnormal state. And he left us also with a manual, an opus, a 600-page book that is all that is Beirut. And, I mean, what, what, better, what better person to end the tour with than the man who literally died loving Lebanon a little too much? I think unfortunately I'd have to start it now at the central bank. I mean, I think I, I, I used to include the central bank on the tour without ever, ever really thinking that something this crazy could happen here. I mean, and I think maybe that's naive, but I, I never imagined where we are right now when I started giving the tour and, and the years after. So sitting at the steps of the central bank in the sort of lighthearted way of talking about our currency, I think you can't do it anymore. It's just too painful. I can't even try to explain what's happening now. So maybe, maybe, maybe it would be more an uplifting sort of uh, 
version, one that should be, I think, available once COVID is, is gone. Because, I mean, the story is still a great story. It's mired now in, in, in pain and agony, but it's still a fantastic story. And not, not all the bad stuff is always bad. I mean, you can, you can find beauty and pain in Beirut everywhere. And I think that's part of its charm, is that the, the beautiful stuff maybe shines a little more than it should because it's surrounded in, in real pain. I think when you're in the middle of it, <clears throat> it becomes hard to see that, you know, um, it's important to kind of step away and realize that this is only one specific moment in time that you're living. Uh, and, you know, it's going to be different later and it was different before. But doing that becomes hard when you're in the middle of the, you know, of just major changes happening in the country and uh, very painful changes that are happening. And not knowing if you're going to come out on the other side with a good story to tell, which is very, you know, very possible, or, or with, you know, with a bad story to tell. I agree, and I think this is why when the protests started, I put all my effort into this podcast. Because it's okay to take a break from that kind of storytelling, and, and talk about what's happening and, and preserve it. And that's, I think, how I met many people that I now consider friends, and, and you're, you're, you're included. I decided to maybe shift gears a bit and capture and maybe try to offer insight into what's happening and how to get out of it. So that's where I decided that it's, you can't really, you can't give a positive tour right now in Beirut anyway. So maybe, maybe there is a moment where you should reflect and reflect in a way that's not always rosy. I mean, our conversations, I think, were were difficult. And, I mean, I'll give you just... I mean, the second episode we did together, you were... I think you were still injured from the blast. And you weren't in your home. And we were talking about that. So this is not stuff... You can't um, you can't ignore that stuff. But I think, I think I found a way to maybe still offer some reflection, even when things are terrible. And I hope, long-term, this is what the podcast does. It sort of, it records it. It sort of, it's a document you can, you can lean on whenever you need to. And uh, hopefully 250 episodes. <laughs> I mean, I don't have, <laughs> the way you said it was funny, and it's true. Yeah, it's, it's maybe too many episodes for such a short period of time. So maybe when things ease up a bit, if they do, the number can sort of stabilize a bit as well. No, I think it's, I, I mean, I think it's very important, especially the kind of people that, that you've been talking to. I mean, this idea of just documenting this moment in time, um, even if people are talking about, you know, something, you know, if you're talking to a historian and he's telling you about the history of, uh, of Lebanon or, or whatever place, it's still being documented as of this moment. And I think, I mean, I speak for myself, but I've reached the point where after a year and a half of, um, of kind of being involved in uh, all the financial and economic stuff happening here, where I realized that maybe my biggest contribution to this is going to end up being just, you know, recording the history of it. Um, and in the same way that, you know, architecture and history, and, um, you know, individuals uh, and communities all shape the history of a place, there's a lot of different angles to, to, to kind of the, 
it's important to document all of it, even the financial and economic history of it. And I think something else as well. And the social history. Oh, sorry. Sorry, Mike. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I just I keep getting... Uh, I mean, one problem with being involved in uh, Lebanese issues is that your phone keeps blowing up because reporters keep calling. So I've gotten like five, six calls in a row since we've joined this call from a reporter that I keep hanging up on. And it disconnects me for a second. Anyway. <clears throat> I, you know, so, so, so kind of I, I relate to it in my own way because you know it's in a, especially in a place like Lebanon where people just don't have a shared history you know everybody either doesn't know their history or a history is invented that may not be you know totally accurate but it's part of like that community's own storytelling about itself but I might I might challenge you on this Mike if I may and even though it's not maybe it's not my place to do this in this kind of <laughs> conversation, uh, but I'll I'll challenge the premise. I think it's not that. I think we do have enough of a shared past, and I think the these conversations which are healthy, these notions of whatever you want to call it, identity or what it means to be Lebanese and citizenry, all that stuff. I think we're figuring that out, and I think that stuff takes time anyway. And I think a lot of us, up to a point, have an idea of what's happened here. But I think also that what you said earlier resonates with me. Uh, these are not just conversations that are being recorded. These are experts in the field that are offering their advice and many times offering their free time. And they're risking perhaps their financial careers, offering solutions, knowing how to get things Done. I, I would include you in this group, and it's not just you, it's many people that we know that have the expertise that should be in positions of power in this country, and those conversations are with those people at the same time. Lebanon gets worse and worse and worse. And I think that may be the core of everything that we're doing, because what you said before, if your ultimate uh, accomplishment is preserving what happened and offering lessons, it means that there's something far deeper, something far worse that has allowed the situation to get where it is right now. There's too much talent, there's too much skill and knowledge and know-how in this country for Lebanon to be the way it is right now. It doesn't add up. So I think there's something there. And I, I don't really... Um, I mean, I don't want to beat the dead horse, and we don't have to go down this road if, if you don't want to. But uh, but I, I think that there's a structural problem that is going to perhaps see the Lebanon that we know die. And this will be our generation. And you, you'll always have borders. You'll always have a, uh, a passport. There will always be a currency called the lira. And one day they may even remove some zeros, and we'll sort of readjust ourselves. But I think the Lebanon that we care for may not survive in our generation. And I think we're proving it. And that's... that's well, you know... Yeah. Sorry. You know, whenever you have these, you know, crises of this nature, you, you know, countries go through just very fundamental changes and they need to... And then they self-reflect. 
And sometimes what comes out of that is something very negative. You know, if you look at, uh, you know, post World One, World War One Germany, uh, it's just one very stark example. Um, or, um, you know, or something very positive comes out of it because as countries reflect on their history and their story, um, they just are able to come together and go down a path that, um, you know, ultimately fixes these structural problems and they come out better on the other side. But from your conversations with people, your interviews, your, um, your, your, you know, historical tours of Beirut, what do you make of this idea that Lebanon has actually never fundamentally been one country? It's been, you know, at least four different peoples with their own national narratives and stories who happen to share a similar geographic area. But their story and their history is different. And so it's not possible to build a nation out of, or at least the kind of nation that we have, out of four different peoples. I would wholeheartedly uh, destroy this argument. <laughs> I I I don't subscribe to these ideas. I think you can have as many different communities, you can have even different languages, you can have fundamentally different people living side by side. I don't think that's the reason. And I'll say something else, and feel free to disagree when you see fit. I think Lebanon may be among the most tolerant places on this planet. It is real cosmopolitanism. It's, it's not a joke. You have fiercely fundamentalist people living in this country next to extreme secularists, and they're side by side. You have different ways of living. You have different belief systems. You have different ethnicities. You have different peoples living in the same terrain, and they manage. They live side by side. I don't think it's them that allows Lebanon to, to, to become ungovernable. I don't think it's the fact that we are different people living in the same place. I don't believe that. And I don't think, I don't think that is, um, it's not a fait accompli. Lebanon did work at some point. Lebanon was maybe not uh, was never maybe the shining star that we dream of. It was always a somewhat dysfunctional place. But there is a period of time in living memory where Lebanon was a state. You could hold it accountable to a point. There was enough rule of law. There was enough management against corruption. And there was enough decency in this place. And it's not that long ago. And it's the same crowd that lived here. And they were not were they, they were not killing each other. They were not destroying this place. So I, I don't I don't believe that stuff. Although I'm I, I, I'll stop here if you because if you want to interject, yeah. I would yeah. No, I mean I'm when I look at this place from my perspective, you know, and kind of the circles that I belong to and, and my experience here. I also don't necessarily see that, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, I live in, uh, my family's from Tripoli. 
um, and my, my family's Christian. And growing up, I never felt this uh, idea that like uh, I'm not like you know my friends who aren't Christian. We were actually we we kind of being from Mina was something that brought us together more than um, uh, the the sect that we belong to. And even now, being in Beirut and the people that I'm that I kind of associate with the most, um, I've I've personally never felt this distinction. Um, but I also wasn't raised here my whole life, and so my my experience is is kind of limited. And also, you know, uh, you know I just have a different experience in this country um, because you know, and then even in, outside of, of Lebanon, when you're in you know. US, for example, where I was raised, um, a lot of my friends were Lebanese, college and after college, um, very diverse, geographically, sect, whatever, and um, you, whether you, you know, you just naturally feel this very strong bond and so much in common with them, and the, the difference in sect just never comes up and never becomes an issue and it's just never something that even it just really just does not come up you know at all um and so for but for some reason here it just does and i don't know why that is um maybe it's a generational thing um uh, where kind of a younger generation just grows up with a more diverse set of experiences and more exposure outside and different uh, you know, different interests and different um, experience in life where that just becomes something that's less important to them versus somebody who was being raised 50 years ago in a village where they may not have even interacted with somebody from a different set. But I would go a step further, Mike. I think you're allowed to have the inward-looking villager who's never set foot in a different part of the country and the radically cosmopolitan, outward-looking citizen living in Beirut, and neither one is a problem. And neither one may even be positive by default. I, I think the issues are not there. And I think the, the, the beauty of this country, whatever it is today, the beauty of this country is that there is a diverse crowd, and there are differing ideas. And it would be very boring if we were all the same. And I don't want to get into sort of treacherous territory here, but I know the word sectarian is often used in a pejorative way, and that this is a bad thing. I think the way it's, the way it's applied today is, is horrible. But the truth is, I don't think it's great to have sort of one flavor of anything. So that's Lebanon's strength. It's not its curse. What is obvious is that in terms of governing, that multitude, that mosaic, whatever you want to call it, it was never put in the right place. It wasn't celebrated in the proper channels. There's no Senate in this country. Lebanon is one of the few places that really, really needs a Senate, and we don't have one. That's the chamber where these differing, where the sensitivities and insecurities should be talked about and should be, should be cared for that doesn't exist in this country. And I'd go a step further. Uh, I, I think, and I may be in the minority camp here, I don't know. I really think it's impossible to have a delicate balance when sovereignty is just tossed out the window. Every single issue that we should not be fighting for in this country 
we end up fighting for. And that's because Lebanon is not a functioning state today. The, the diversity is not the reason. The communalism, the confessionalism, the consociationalism is not the reason why we're at, where we are where we are right now. The state is... When was the last time it was functioning? Well, I mean, I, I speak... Okay, this is very subjective. And I, I, I will take liberty here in speaking about a time that I don't know because I, I wasn't alive. In my humble view... 1969, and I, I don't think uh, I don't think Lebanon has been working since. And that that year I think is important. It's not that before 1969 things were always great. There was a mini uprising turned potential civil war in 1958. There was I mean World War One is one of the worst chapters of modern Lebanon's history. It's not that things were rosy until 1969, but there's a window of time in at least independent Lebanon's history where there was a state, there were institutions, you could hold them to account at least to a point. And pardon the stupid reference here, but it maybe goes back to the beginning of the conversation. You couldn't double park on Bliss Street without getting a ticket, and you would pay that ticket. It's not something that you could just throw away or call somebody and get out of. You'd be fined, and you would go to jail if you didn't pay that ticket. And no one cared. Whether you were bet mean or flan, doesn't, doesn't matter. It's a silly example, but I think it's important because it's not that long ago. After 1969, in my opinion, I think Lebanon lost the core foundation it needs to stand up again. And that's its sovereignty. It simply doesn't exist. And we may end up having the same conversations in, in, uh, in, in years from now, talking about the same issues without having addressed the, the core problem. And we see Lebanon degrading in that direction. So I think, it's, I think it's a hopeless cause without tackling that issue. I think it becomes irrelevant. What happened in 1969? 1969 is the year Lebanon sovereignty ceased. This is the Cairo Accord. This is when Lebanon was not deemed a state, wasn't deemed an independent actor. It was going to be the battlefield for the Arab-Israeli conflict. In 1970, Lebanon became a battlefield for regional war. There was absolutely no justification for this tiny little real estate here to be a host to the PLO, or for that matter, Fatah. It doesn't add up. Sympathies, whatever. Persuasion, causes, you can fight for anything, doesn't matter. There's no justification for Lebanon being a battlefield, period. And that's what, it, that's what happened. And you know what? It took years until the Civil War started. But that's when every single bad actor we know today that we... Sometimes you have to still talk, talk to them <laughs> in, your, in your meetings. That's when these... these mediocre, thuggish-like mafia warlords. This is where they came from. They came from a state that adjusted itself to political violence. And every single political party turned militia. That's, those are the years where Lebanon fell apart. Not before then. It's after. And you know what? By 1975, this whatever was Lebanon, it seized completely. It literally tore itself apart.
But then we talk about the post-war order as if things went back to normal in 1989. It's, it's, it's like we define it as, you know, the 15 years were just a sort of something that we can look back on, and that's that. But that's a fundamental falsehood. Lebanon... Sorry. Let me, let me stop you just before we get into the more modern era. Yeah. Before 1969, Lebanon may have been working for some people, but for a big chunk of the population, it wasn't working, and they don't remember it as fondly as you're describing it, which is a big part of, you know, why the war, why the civil war started. So there were cracks in that system. That eventually led us to the war. May I may I disagree right now, or is it too soon? Sure. No, no, go ahead. <laughs> I don't want to disagree unless there were more things. I didn't want to interrupt you. No, 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 go ahead. You are right that Lebanon did not work well for all its communities, and you're absolutely right. There was a discrimination, absolutely. It was built into the system too. You're absolutely right. Christian majority, Muslim minority in terms of governance, not in terms of population. And you're absolutely right. There were impoverished Sunni and Shia villages north and the south. You're absolutely right. And you're absolutely wrong that that's the reason the civil war started. The two do not connect. The civil war did not start because there's a segment of Lebanon that did not fully feel embraced by this state. That's not why people started fighting. And I would add to this. Lebanon deserved its chance, and it didn't have it. That's 50-some years ago. Put us in a part of the world that was not as screwed up as this part of the world. These communities, these peoples, whatever you want to call them, they would have figured it out. There, there may have been some fighting. And you know what? We may even have had a civil war in our history, but not this. Not where we are. And that is not because of people that were let's say, underprivileged in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. It's simply not true. The civil war is a breakdown of sovereignty. The state collapsed. Militia against militia became the norm in this country. That's not economics. That's pure politics. And it's the worst kind of politics. Yeah, I mean, but it's, it's one thing to say that that's what lit the fuse. Um, that eventually turned into a civil war. But if you didn't have those building blocks for the war, communities that felt disenfranchised, that didn't feel like they were a part of the state because they were neglected by the state, then 1969 alone was not enough. It, it had to come on top of a system that was disillusioning to a lot of Lebanese people. I mean, if you talk to people today and just ask Lebanese people today, how do you remember? Or what is your story of, you know, post-independence Lebanon through the Civil War? You're going to get very different uh, perspectives. I mean, if I ask my family, they remember those days like the glory days, the golden days. I don't know if only my family says that or if is that where your curiosity and money comes from? Your visits to the casino during the war? <laughs> uh, yeah, my mom must have been pregnant. 
يا امي هاي البونزي سكيم the significance of 1969 and and accommodating the economic discussion and prioritizing it i think is missing the point and i say this carefully i don't want to sound like i'm being condescending here i think the functionality of the state the monopoly of violence the tearing apart of the lebanese army the inability the this the real inability to disarm militia not the plo not fatah al kataib the phalanges the inability to stop warring factions by 1975 and the breakdown of the Lebanese state that's what that's what ushered in the civil war you are right though you are right that the economic problems of this country were there they would have persisted and they may have they may have manifested themselves it's not economic Ronnie, it's not just economic problems i'm talking about political problems the, you know, the, the political the solution that the politi- neglect Yes, the political disenfranchise the the political disenfranchisement of Muslims of Lebanon in particular in particular was real and the celebration of Gamal Abdel Nasser was real and you know what I'll I'll go further Lebanon did experience violence in 1958 and that's not 1969 that's a decade earlier there's no fatah there's no plo there was a chance for this country to tear itself apart and it didn't that's important you can criticize him all you want and it's fair criticism maybe even borderline dictatorial tendencies but the truth is lebanon did have a type of leadership it was for edge heb mostly but not just him who decided diffi- difficult issues that are tearing the region apart you cannot have them in lebanon and gamal abdel nasser did not set foot in lebanon Kamal Abdel Nasser and Fouad have met at the border of the United Arab Republic which is Syria and Egypt and Lebanon. And you know what? That stuff matters. That stuff does not discredit the other problems that exist in Lebanon. You're right. But but it is absolutely important. Arab nationalism, the Arab-Israeli conflict, the Saudi-Iranian proxy wars, 
and everything that's happened since, from Syrian hegemony to where we are right now, that stuff Lebanon cannot shield itself from, period. So you want to address the other issues, and I agree with you, they should be addressed anyway, and they should have been addressed. And I'm hypothesizing here. I think eventually they would have been addressed. And there may have been periods of violence too. But the point is, it's not a, it's not a half century of disorder, violence, war, and complete, utter breakdown. I don't think that stuff would have happened. Sovereignty is important. And I, and I don't think the smaller issues, as noble as they are, and maybe they're not small, maybe they're big, maybe they're huge, the other issues cannot be fully tackled unless this one thing is, fit, is, one thing is done with. You can't have a lawless, open, borderless, paralyzed country that invites every regional conflict. You simply can't have that. You will always have a broken Lebanon. Well, that's the, that's, I think, um, I think the area of debate maybe is whether that stuff comes from the top down or from the bottom up. Do you need to have a sovereign, you know, strong state that maybe is uh, oppressive um, to a part of the country and then fix that over time? Or do you need from the bottom up to convince the different communities in Lebanon that they have an incentive and an interest in a, uh, you know, a, a country called Lebanon and in a state of Lebanon? Because now, you know, I mean, we can just skip right to the modern the modern day um, I think um, w- where you were going with this conversation is um, you know it started in 69 and then here we are today with just a, a variation of 69 um, um, and we hear a lot about okay you know countries problems can't be solved until there's a sovereign state until everybody's disarmed etc but is this something that can be done from the top down? How do you do it if you don't convince every community here that this is where their interests lie as a first step? I'll, I'll pitch an idea. And it goes back to the earlier point in the conversation. I think 1969 was not a decision taken in Lebanon. It's called the Cairo Accord. This is a decision made outside of Lebanon that helps destroy Lebanon. So it's not Lebanese decision-making. This is not a consensus-driven agreement among different communities in Lebanon. This is an imposed decision. I think, and maybe it sounds more like a dream now, but I, I still believe it, that the same situation may help Lebanon. And I think... These issues cannot be solved inside this country. That geopolitical stuff that is still part of our life, for better or worse, the decisions cannot be taken here. And and attempts, soft attempts, at trying to adjust the situation for the better have been met with violence. And not just once or twice, repeatedly. 
So perhaps those answers, unfortunately, are not in this country. And, it, and I think it should be a rallying cry. And I think it's something that does not belong in the church. It's not the patriarch's job. He sh it shouldn't be coming out of his mouth. But it should be coming out of our mouths. That, yes, we deserve our chance. We need some breathing space. And we should not be hostage to regional war, period. So what does that mean? What, how, do you, how, do you, how do you see an intractable issue like this being resolved outside of Lebanon? The truth is, I don't know. And I don't have a creative solution to offer. I wish I did. But I do think that there is a country in our part of the world right now that is a kingmaker when it comes to this decision. And I don't know if they're willing, maybe they're unwilling, for their own reasons. And it could be true that maybe Hezbollah is more important to Iran than we appreciate. Maybe Hezbollah is more important than their nuclear program. Maybe it's their lifeline. And it could be, you want to stretch it further, perhaps regional instability is what keeps that kind of regime or regimes like that around. So sacrificing the last militia in this country and its involvement, not just in Lebanon, but in the entire region, it may not be of their interest. So I don't know. But if there's any way out, if there's any way out for us, and, and I mean this, in terms of the Lebanon that we grew up in, forget the pre-war Lebanon, the last few decades, if it's going to stick around the way we want it to, I think we have, we have to make that our call and make it a point that if this kind of system that we have right now is enshrined and preserved, you're going to see the complete collapse of this country. But Ronnie, still, I feel like we're, you know, we often approach this issue as a top-down thing. Um, and not just Hezbollah, even like the, um, the Zama, the other parties, as though there is some type of foreign alien creature imposed on us versus a reflection of us and coming out of us. Like people think, okay, well, as soon as that generation um, passes, uh, we'll be fine. But there is something more fundamental there. These groups are not imposed on the Lebanese population. They, they, they bubble up out of them. So to solve it, don't you need to address it at the root cause where, why do people feel the need to be with, you know, this group or that? Why do, do they feel the need to be armed? What is missing there versus just trying to impose a disarmament on a people that, you know, that, you know, it's not like, I mean, that's why the protests, I feel, um, that the revolution was not as successful as people wanted it to be. Because you're not out there protesting against a dictator like, um, you know, and we don't have like a Mugabe who we're protesting against and he's imposed on us by force, but the population doesn't want him. These people are just a reflection of this society. There's a, like a much deeper fundamental social issue here that unless you solve that, there's no amount of deal-making 
that I feel will get you to having, you know, I mean, I was raised in the U.S. I know what kind of country I want to live in, you know. Uh, I want to live in a pluralistic, free, um, uh, democratic, you know, that, that, yeah, that is not involved in in every regional conflict that happens. I mean, that, it's just, that's not my background and it's not, it's not the kind of, it's not the, the vision that I have for this country. But I also recognize that, you know, these issues, they come out of us, they come out of the way this country is built and the experience of different communities here. And I'm not, I, I'm, and I'm, I'm asking you this because I think it's good to kind of debate these things. But if, if we as a, as a society here want something, okay, and even if that thing is negative, why should we think that there's any amount of deal making abroad that's going to solve these what I consider to be fundamentally Lebanese problems? And, and maybe you, you disagree with the premise of that question. Maybe you don't see them as fundamentally Lebanese questions. But you know, I mean, even on Clubhouse, you know, you can go into different rooms of you know people who um, are you know belong to. Uh, Hezeb or Harakat Amal, and you hear them, and and you know this is not this is not this, my circle because I just I know I'm from Tripoli, so we're such a segregated country that I very until you know the last two years I I, I was never even exposed to many communities here, um, and when you hear how they tell their story and their here and their um, the way they see this society you realize very quickly that this is not an imposed thing. This is a reflection of, of the, the different, the mosaic here. And it just so happens that this is where it's led us for various historical reasons. And sure, I, I recognize that when you have that, you expose yourself to, I mean, there's a reason why Lebanon is probably the only country in the world where when we talk about who's going to be the next president, people say, hey, the, um, it's surreal being an outsider and coming here and hearing these things. But I feel what's exposed us is, is our devils that we never dealt with. May I disagree with a different premise? <laughs> I don't think these are people that reflect us. Not one of them. What I do think is that everyone you're talking about, all of these horrible misfits that are still around, are a direct consequence of 1969 and onwards. They're not a reflection of us. Yes, we vote them in. Yes, we have voted some of them in too many times. That's true. But they don't reflect us. And I'll take it a, a different direction. The ones that do reflect us are dead. They're decent people, and they're killed for being too decent in this country. I'll mention him again. I think Samir Asir should have been a politician. He was on his way to becoming one. He was killed. He didn't die of a heart attack. He was murdered. You know what, Mike? Basil Flehan. I mean, this is a very decent economist, a very decent human being. He should be still alive. He should be advising. Maybe he'd still be a minister or he'd be doing something else. He was killed. This guy did not die from natural causes. He was killed in an explosion that kept him burned. 
in a coma state for six weeks, still alive. That's not how somebody like that should die because they love Lebanon a little too much. They're murdered. Even the ones that are perhaps more controversial only because maybe their written word is more controversial. Gibran Twaini should be alive. If he wants to talk about Christian issues, he should be alive talking about them. Lukman Slim should be alive. If he wants to talk about Ghbeiri on his terms, he deserves so. He shouldn't be dead. That kind of crowd is the one in my mind, for better or worse, they reflect better. They're not maybe the best in, in a different country. Maybe they're the best here. But they're as close as you can get in terms of decency and respectability as long as you have political violence at your doorstep. And all the rest, all of them, not one, without one exception, all of them are either direct or indirect collateral to whether it's Fatah in the 70s, the militia across our country in the 80s, the Syrians in the 90s, and Hezbollah today, all of them. The ones that are dead are dead because they challenge that. The rest are alive because they don't challenge it. So I don't think these people reflect us one bit. They reflect the disorder. They reflect a country without sovereignty. They don't reflect the population. In my mind, they have absolutely nothing to do with the suffering population today. But the question is, why does that environment exist in the first place? Why does this environment of that kind of gives rise Okay, fine. You know, the, yes, the good ones do. You know, the good ones um, get assassinated, and that has reverberations on everyone else who's still alive. But why does that environment exist? It's not, you know, the, the assassinations, are they a cause of the dysfunction, which is what it sounds like you're saying, or are they a consequence of it? And if there are consequences of it, then why does that dysfunction exist? No, no, why no. Do people... Assassinations are simply, this is a tool. This is a tool used by group or groups that are not under state authority, period. The Syrian regime in the 1990s was not held to account by the, by the Lebanese state. They were indirectly and directly occupying Lebanon. Go back to the 70s. Go back to Al-Kata'ib. Go back to Al-Ishtiraq, Al-Murabitun, go back to Fatah. These groups could not be held to account by a Lebanese army that had splintered and by the Lebanese state. Al-Yom... No, no, but let... let, let, But I'll I'll just say one more thing. Hezbollah is part of that story. So that's why, that's why I think it's very important to note always that it's not Hezbollah only that has led us to where we are right now. That's factually inaccurate. But they are the most recent version of this paralyzing situation. And what gave rise to it, Mike, is going back to the earlier part of our discussion, Lebanon lost its sovereignty. You cannot hold these kinds of groups to account. And for that matter, you can't hold the worst components of our political establishment right now to account either. You need to have a system that you can hold to account. That requires sovereignty. It's not a secondary issue. No, it's definitely not secondary. But the question goes back to something 
about this country, about its history, about its makeup, about its political organization that exposes us to having this, to having no government, to having communities feel more connection to parties, to having communities feel that they're, it's in their best interest to be armed. And what is giving rise to that? Everything else, I think, in terms of solving the root cause of the problem, that's, that's what I'm trying to push you a little bit on because I feel the premise you're describing suggests that it's a outside imposed condition on Lebanon versus a um, kind of an endogenous Lebanese condition that exposes this country to be uh, the way that it is. And, and, and the, 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 the consequence of it or, or the, the relevance of it is it affects the solutions that one needs to draft up because kind of, okay, in 20 years or in 10 years or five years or whatever, you don't want to keep going down this path of more lawlessness, more anarchy, more armed groups. You don't want to go there. I don't think it's a controversial thing to say that a properly functioning government is one that every community under that government feels that they belong to it and have an interest in it and think that it should have a monopoly on power. I mean, I, this, I don't think these are really controversial things. But it remains the case that many people in Lebanon don't feel this way. Why is that the case? I think I understand your question, and I go back to it again. This is 50 years of this situation. The communities that you're describing right now that are insecure in Lebanon are also in the same Lebanon that our grandparents lived in, our parents, and we live in as well. The, these insecurities are real, and they they're, they will always be there. And I'm, I'm going just a little earlier to our conversation that, yes, there has to be an evolution to this system. There needs to be something like a Senate. There has to be a way to recondition sectarianism in this country that is more that is better for Lebanon rather than worse. So yes, the the system is is so outdated right now, and it is dysfunctional to a point that whether or not there's geopolitical stuff happening, it would have had to be fixed. So that's true. There's communities here that deserve better. There's people that deserve better. Period. But this is all talk, so long as a country doesn't even have its borders under control, or for that matter, its port. And I'm sorry, but it's not about just inspections. This is not just about people that wandered in the port in and out for years and years, for seven years, looked at this dump and did nothing about it. This is a sensitive site. This is a point of transport. This is a paralyzed institution in Lebanon. And you need to have that kind of port facility under direct control. And you need to have competent people. The airport is the same thing. One person is fired from the airport in 2008. And anyone in this group right now that lives in Hamra or in Beirut knows what happened. We're all hiding inside. For days on end, a brief civil war erupts because one person is sacked. This is, not a normal, this is not a normal state. This is a hijacked state. So these are key conditions. They're not secondary. And you want, you want everyone in this country to feel that they're part of the system. Absolutely. This is not trying to diminish one community or elevate the other. On the contrary, 
You want the system to reach that goal. And I don't think, I don't think it's, uh, it's possible so long as these core issues are not fixed. And I, I think time tells us that this is true. It's, it's 30 years, 30, it's almost 32 years since the Civil War ended. That's twice as long as the war itself. This is a whole generation that grows up post-war, without technical civil war, and yet the state collapses. So without, I mean, I'm, and I apologize to everyone listening who's had to deal with me <laughs> in private or on the podcast or wherever. It's not just beating a dead horse. It's not just regurgitating the same message over and over for the sake of it. There's no excuse. There's simply no excuse for this group in Lebanon today, period. Talk about their politics, talk about their, talk about their social services, talk about perhaps that they're less corrupt than other groups. That discussion is fine. Their capabilities, though, are, there's, there's simply no justification. And without linking, without linking state paralysis to a, this group right now, or even for that matter, the Syrian occupation of this country, or the entire civil war, and just taking it as face value that yes, these are 50 years, but Lebanon's always had problems. I think it's, it's an implied assumption that it's just genetic. And I don't, I don't believe that. And I, 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 again, going back to the first part of our conversation, yes, we could have even more diverse communities living side by side, and the country would still function. So it's really not about these issues, Mike, or at least I don't, I don't think so. that looks the way everybody wants it to look, or at least most people want it to look. Is it top-down? Is it something that can be solved from the outside? Or is it something that has to be done internally by, you know, by changing the um, incentive structure internally or by changing the connection um, between people and between people and their government. And I think, you know, it's not a question that I think anybody can really answer um, uh, definitively, you know. Um, but I think fundamentally the idea that this country's problems are not going to get solved unless there is this kind of fundamental rethinking of the state here and its relationship to people um, and how it functions. Uh, kind of, uh, you know, this in Arabic, I think is, you know, we can talk about all the other issues um, and uh, it's fine, but I think unless there's a very, very deep fundamental rethinking of this country and how it's built and how it should look, um, you're just not going to be able to solve I'll say it again, and I know this sounds sloppy on my side. I, I don't have a creative solution. I only have ideas of what needs to be done, but I don't have a uh, I don't have a proposal. I wish I did. I do know, though. I do know that every regional decision, and it sometimes it's sort of just born out of their names, whether it's Doha, 
whether it's Ta'if, whether it's the Cairo Accord, whatever. These things have cost a lot. We've, we've paid a price for all of these decisions. None of them have helped this country, not, not one. Eight, nine years ago, even though it was a whimper, even though it was just, a, it's just words rather than policy, the Ba'abda Declaration should be a starting point. And yes, Ba'abda today is a very unpopular site, very unpopular figure there, but the principles of that declaration, which Hezbollah signed on to, even though they never actually implemented, this ability to disassociate Lebanon from the regional problems that hurt Lebanon is a starting point. And if there's going to be any salvation, I think, it's a reconsidering of Lebanon as necessary for any country in this part of the world, whether it's today, whether it's Iran, whether it's other countries down the road, or whether it's any country that saw Lebanon as, as an opportunity, or local leaders that saw foreign intervention as something positive. All of that should be part of our past. Getting there is difficult. And in 1989, 1990, we were in many ways given. Our country, our state, our, our sovereignty was in a way sold to the Syrians. We may, we may end up in something similar right now, where this country is deemed as part of another country's sort of turf. And I think it's worth our time and worth every effort to challenge that assumption and, and make it clear that this country does not need to be part of the regional problem, period. It should be disassociated completely. I don't know. I don't know what those security guarantees look like. And I don't know what that kind of bargaining even implies, but I think that's the only way out. We're entering now a country that feels more and more like these countries that we used to learn about and never associate ourselves with. People use words like, people, people reference Somalia now to Lebanon. And, and I, even I, it's, I think it's a condescending term sometimes, but even saying Gaza with Lebanon and the same thing, it's condescending towards the Palestinians. But I think that kind of terminology today, we're getting adjusted slowly to failed state paralysis and collapse and a country that becomes completely ungovernable. So I think it's worth saving ourselves and, and getting out of that tunnel. But the shining star that I think a lot of us dream for, this sort of fully functional state that treats everyone... <laughs> <laughs> in, in a healthy, decent way, I think that will take many, many, many years. We lost time. And this will never happen in our generation. It'll happen maybe down the road, maybe later. It won't happen with our in our lifetime. But that just takes time. It's not something that can be done overnight. Yeah, I mean, very intractable problems here. You know, when you look around, you see the country moving kind of in the opposite direction. Uh, Minister of Interior today, in an interview, was talking about how this country is totally exposed uh, security-wise. And uh, he told the interviewer, I'm like, what? He doesn't give too much, um, you know, reassurance about, about where we're going. I think the conversation that that you, you know, we're having now is, I think, the fundamental one that the country needs to be having. 
but unfortunately, you know, who's there to have that conversation? Usually people look to their leadership to solve these types of problems um, and to have these difficult debates and find a way out. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, we're just really not seeing that. I mean... I think you're right. I think we need heroes, and we don't have them. And I agree. There's no heroes in Lebanon. No, not, not anymore. Wherever you look, there's none. Not anymore, but Mike, sorry to say it again, there were. There were. They're not, they're not thought of as heroes today because they, were not, they did not live their lives to tell their story. They're dead. These were heroes, and we're old enough to know them. And it's not the first time Lebanese have tried to fix this place. So if anything, those are the heroes that should have been guiding us now. And they're not here. And they didn't die because of communalism or sectarianism or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I feel like uh, growing up here, living here, you kind of take for granted the effect that this type of violence has not just on the people directly affected, but on the society as a whole. And having met people who were directly affected by um, assassinations, um, you know, you being one of them running, but others also, you realize just how much these types of wounds just really don't heal. They change your life completely, make you a different person. And you're constantly having to you know, deal with the aftermath of it. Um, and then as, you know, and then if you're not directly affected by it, you still are because it changes your, just your, your, your consciousness of the place and your interaction with the place. You know, it's, um, you know, I can't pretend that it's, uh, you know, even though like, I'm, you know, I'm nobody here, but, that this type of violence hasn't crossed my mind before that, you know, in the U.S. I can say whatever I want, do whatever I want, go wherever I want. Here, it becomes a consideration, like, you know, am, am, I, am I at risk? Am I in danger? Um, and I think a lot of people start feeling that way, especially people who have any type of public exposure. Um, I think people don't really recognize the effect that that has. I'll challenge you on two things, Mike. First, you are not nobody. You are somebody. And I'm honored that you're even talking to me. So you're, you're somebody. That's, and you're, very, you're a very important voice. In, in my own learning curve, I think I've turned to you more than anyone when it comes to the financial situation. So I, and I, and I, I know that I'm not alone. There's thousands of people that share that sentiment. But I will say something else. What you're doing and the, the words you're choosing and, and maybe the space that you operate will never be on their radar. This group does not go after critics and doesn't necessarily even go after people that really, really, really try to persuade an audience against them. They, they, don't, they don't go after these people. They go after anyone that challenges their security apparatus, their money, their proxy paralysis. They go after, they hunt down these people. And if intimidation doesn't work, they're dead. But voices of criticism, it's not on their radar. 
unlike the Syrians, when all of us in this country grew up, couldn't look at Hafiz al-Assad, you couldn't look at his photo too long without worrying that somebody saw you and maybe was going to monitor you because you were looking at a photo of somebody. Or even for that matter, we'd whisper Assad. And at home you would whisper his name. We were frightened. That's pure paranoia. That's real intimidation. We were all on their radar. But we're not all on Hezbollah's radar. And I'll, I'm not giving them the benefit of the doubt here. On the contrary, I'm actually maybe, maybe pointing at it. That their issue is not governing Lebanon. And their issue is not even caring if the population loves them or hates them. I mean, this was an open assassination that the public turned vehemently against them. They don't care. What they do care is that the proxy system that has kept Lebanon where it is in the last 15 years as an extension to the whole conversation we're having, it's ensuring that this thing survives. And I think that is when they actually start looking and they take keen interest in anyone willing to go down that road. So never fear what you're saying, Mike. Never fear it. On the contrary, I think you've, you've taught us a lot. You've taught me a lot. And uh, don't ever let that, uh, let that get in the way of it. And uh, I think, honestly, that's part of the problem today is that, and I include myself here, it's just the thought of it in itself makes you maybe reconsider certain words you choose. And that is a byproduct of it, that all of us know that there is a consequence. It may, may not be directed at us right away, but that there is a real consequence that we've grown accustomed to. No other country has had to deal with this many, these many assassinations in such a short period of time. So maybe it's built in, it's psychological now, that we don't want to go down any road that even brushes against that, that terrain. Uh, just social uh, 
I don't know what it's called, just social conditioning, uh, where when I go back to the U.S. or I leave Lebanon, I, you just feel this huge weight off your shoulder because you're not worried about that stuff over there. No, but it's worse. It, it's worse, Mike. It's worse. The Beirut was assassinated. The port, this explosion, tore half the city apart. So anyone who was in Beirut, and you included, or anyone who even experienced something related to this blast, whether it's hearing it, whether it's surviving it, whether it's getting injured, or even losing loved ones, or or just watching the familiarity of what's left of the beauty of this place just evaporate. We've all now experienced in different ways what it's like to lose something you love right before you. I mean, I I, I live now in Marim Chayil and I live in an apartment that was patched up together, but I get used to it and I still see my fridge, which is, I think, uh, it's embarrassing to show anyone. It works, but it barely works. And I think we adjust ourselves to this extreme abnormality. And now I'll answer the other question you asked before. I adjusted myself to it as well. I know it's a very personal experience. I mean, there are other there were other people killed in that explosion that took my father. I I, I lost someone else in that explosion that I knew, not just my father. And yes, I had to face it and adjust myself to it. But that is part of my wider point, is that how the hell can you fix a country when you have to adjust yourself to this? How about we end that first? And how about we never ever have to imagine a city that is paying the price for a Syrian, potentially Syrian regime-friendly ammonium nitrate dump? Why the hell do we even have to pay that price to begin with? Didn't we pay enough of a price for those years when the Syrian regime mismanaged this country? Why the hell are we still paying this price? I'm sorry to get a bit uh, crude here, but uh, but I mean it. What the hell? What what is this whole conversation about if we're not able to address that? It's not about sectarianism. It's not about corruption. It's not about economics. With all due respect to everyone pushing through valiantly, the root cause has to be dealt with. Otherwise, you're going to have a population that has adjusted itself to complete anarchy and low-level violence, and it's on its way. I mean, we now know people that have had their homes looted or have, you know, things broken. You have violence that is increasing. You, you're, going to have, you're going to have violence that has never existed here, and people will start killing each other out of necessity to survive. So this is not, I mean, we can, we can adjust ourselves to this kind of chaos, but then you don't have a country anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think um, if people agreed on the root cause of the problem, it would be much easier to solve it. I think that's, that's the problem here is that, you know, you just have too many people disagreeing on what that root cause is. But I, I will, um, I, I apologize for talking too much. It's rare that I'm not on the <laughs> other side. <laughs> No, you, you actually talk a lot even when you're interviewing. People. Oh, really? <laughs> I should learn to shut up. <laughs> I, I, you have a point. I'll, I'll end it this way. I'll end it with just a, a thought that I always think of. 
other countries have gone through problems. Other, other places have gone through war. There are many divided societies that have imploded. And they don't stay that way. They move on. And nobody uh, thinks otherwise now. And it's not, it's not terrain that I'm an expert in, but I've had the luxury of talking to people that study this all the time, that there are other paramilitary forces that were disarmed in history, and that's that. You move on. Nobody talks about Bosnian Serb grievances and Republika Srpska of Bosnia-Herzegovina. Nobody talks about that military. Nobody talks about Karadzic or Mladic. It's done. It's over. Eta. Nobody talks about Basque rights through violence today. Eta's done. It's gone. The IRA is gone. Catholic grievances are real. Basque grievances are real. And Bosnian grievances across communities are real. But nobody expects a militia to survive as they move forward. Even Colombia, even Colombia has, is finding its way without FARC. Why do we have to accommodate Hezbollah, period? It doesn't make sense. Not Hezbollah, the charity, not Hezbollah, the potential political party. Not that, the militia. We don't like to talk about it because I think it's part of our, maybe that is part of our curse, is that we are a very tolerant society. And I really think we are able to accommodate many things. And we don't go down that road out of necessity, maybe. Maybe it's out of fear. But at the same time, it's no excuse. There's no place in modern Lebanon for a militia that could determine peace and war, that can hijack institutions on their terms, and can say whether or not a protest movement is legitimate or illegitimate, or just how far reforms should go in one direction or the other, or just who exactly should be governing, and what kind of opposition to them is tolerable to them. Not the opposition we are or we want, their opposition, which is mediocre and incompetent and is living in a place of minute gains. So I don't see any justification any longer in 2021 for Lebanon re retaining this burden and paying a price for it as well. So I'll, I'll leave it there. I think we need to end this on a uh, upbeat note. <laughs> <laughs> because we've gone for an hour and 40 minutes. Um, <clears throat> very, very different from what we've been talking about. But I wanted to ask you this up front. What did you to tell me, aside from, um, you know, your interview with me on your podcast? And sorry, this is like a very drastic change, but I don't want to end, end this on, like, uh, on something too heavy. But I want you to tell me who was the most interesting person you interviewed and why. Can I, can I name several? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because I know that I, <laughs> if I say one, it may not, <laughs> I should balance. And if you want, I can also ask you who was your worst interview. Oh, well, no. I, 
then in that case, can I say several on both sides? <laughs> uh, I, I'll, I'll tell you the, the conversations that stuck with me. Um, a gentleman, uh, a scholar, Ziad Majid, um, Samir Asir's friend. He's an academic now in Paris, but he comes back to Lebanon from time to time. Uh, he invited me into his home in Paris and we spent about two hours and he told me the Beirut that he grew up in and the challenges he faced in the early 1990s when there was this desire for change. And it was a friendship with someone that I deeply respect. I mean, Samir Asir is still someone I look up to and he obviously, he knew him well. And I think, uh, just letting him share his his fond memories of a Beirut that slowly started falling apart in his own lifetime and eventually took Samir Asir. I think I was drawn to that conversation. And I think uh, I learned a lot about what real friendship and what loyalty is and why somebody can, in a way, uh, suffer so much yet still care so much about Lebanon. So that, that conversation, I think, uh, it stayed with me. Uh, another one is with Ziad Dwayri. And I know he's become maybe a more controversial figure in, the, in recent years. But still, I mean, I think hands down, the best storyteller in terms of film of our generation. I don't think there is a better Lebanese filmmaker. I may be losing friends by saying this, but I, I still think he stands out. I think he's the best. And I met him as well in Paris on the same trip. And he took me into his editing studio. And he just, he, he lured me in to a 1980s Hamra that I, that I don't know. And it's a Hamra that he loved. Going from cinema to cinema as the war was raging. And that his father used to have a store in downtown. And that he would wander the streets of Ras Beirut during war, and was completely at ease. And I like that. I like the innocence in times of chaos and uncertainty. And he's just an adolescent, he's a teenager, finding his way through, through, through breakdown. And maybe, maybe along the way, gaining the tools necessary for storytelling. And I mean, West Beirut is that, is that accomplishment. That's his own life. That's his childhood, growing up in Beirut. Uh, the, the, <laughs> the negative ones, Mike, I'd rather not <laughs> Be, because, uh, <laughs> well, you never know. Yeah. We're going to have to go back and, uh, and rewatch those. I'm drawn to storytellers. And even though they're not the same person, Ziad Mejid is an academic a journalist and Ziad Dwayde is a filmmaker. They're not in the same field, but I like anyone who can share a story on their terms, and there is a larger truth at stake. It's not the details. It's not necessarily even the, the dry facts. It's the arc. I, I love that. And I'll just say before anything, it's unfair. It's not just these two people stood out. Every single protester that we did episodes with during the protests, every single conversation I had from October until around January, of 2020, day in, day out, 
all those conversations, I think, I mean, they, I learned so much. So it would be, it would be impossible for me to just lean on those two alone. I, I, I think I, I think I reimagined my own love for Beirut as well. And it was, uh, I was very lucky to have so many people willing to talk to me. And it's all documented and it's, it's forever. So that's, uh, you know, I think that's something quite, quite beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I know it's incredible work. And um, I hope you do more uh, um, Tripoli storytelling because I know you're partly from there as well. La Ana Habibi fully Tripoli and on both sides. But uh, oh, no so there is a special episode We're coming cousins. out. Yeah, we're not cousins. <laughs> but Enta, you're uh, from the from the others. You're across the street. I'm from Mina, actually. Me, I'm in the yeah. But there there is a special episode about Tripoli that I will release in the coming months. It's just that it's it's many conversations at once. So I'm putting it together. But it's audio only. But there is a special episode that will be released this Sunday. Fingers crossed, it all goes as planned. It's with Monica Bergman, uh, Lukman Slim's wife. So she's, she's an astute observer of collective memory and narrative. I mean, Umam and Hanger was, was their project together. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to this episode. Because I think uh, she's a storyteller by profession. And she fell in love with one as well. So that, that's an episode I'm, I've been looking forward to. Should we take? Ronnie, is there anything else you wanted to say before we? Uh, do you want to take some questions? Well, because you have I'm not a moderator, so I can't see if there's anybody raising their hand. Oh, okay. Well, let's see. I see two people. Uh, I see three. Uh, okay, I will push. Let's go with. Okay, let's do it. Let's do Rila Al Halabi here. I'll click her in. I couldn't agree more. And I think that was the that was really the wider point that absolutely it's a cycle that we can't break. 
Mike, uh, I will I will pull in Jamil Mrui. I think he's also asking a question. I hope I did that right. Let's see, Jamil. Okay. Yes. Oh, thank you. Um, uh, thank you, guys. That was a, sort of a stream of consciousness, kind of Lebanese stream of consciousness with all its insecurities and all its uh, confidence, confidence and hope, and uh, of course insecurities in what has happened. In 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 few short sentences, as comments on what you said, uh, on what has been said. Uh, Lebanon is a small place, was dynamic until Fuad Shahab decided that he cannot do it anymore. That was the experiment that uh, uh, Ronnie basically deferred to 1969. It was really 1964 when, when the man... Uh, or 1970, wasn't it? Yeah, 1964, when the man uh, was not able to do it anymore. And remember, and you referred to all of this, the external powers. Lebanon, at the origination as a founding member of the Arab League, had a clause in the Arab League, treat it specially, treat it gently, give it its specificity. That was all thrown out the window when military and security uh, regimes, including Nasser, uh, uh, at his uh, height of insecurity in the war in Yemen, uh, began to use Lebanon because it was an open society, because it has enjoyed 10, 15 years of a special status. Post that, we had many phenomena taking place. Most important is that the Arab states no longer respected their policy towards Lebanon. Simultaneously, the Lebanese did not renovate, update, reform their system, our system. Simultaneously, we, we have a huge, comparatively speaking, uh, population explosion. The management was no longer able, the management in, in whether it is Beladiyat, whether it is government, whether it is uh, military, whether it is security, was no longer able to, to take care of business. Yet, the Lebanese were and have enjoyed the, the fruits of the connection with the West, the, univers the American University, the Israeli, and our talented people in the 60s onwards left the country and did not uh, and the government was no longer attractive and politic politics became uh, an, uh, a function of security agencies the revival of uh, october 17th is a golden opportunity for this group of people called Lebanese to regain their talent, to regain their right to their talent. Uh, I believe that 
it is not going to happen unless we answer three questions. Number one, taxes. How are we going to pay for our lifestyle? Number two, how are we going to arbitrate and adjudicate our problems? And number three, how are we going to recognize that we are a weak country, that we are always going to be in the crosswinds of this area? This is the comments that I wanted to make. And incidentally, as you may or may not know, Ronnie, my father was assassinated in 1966 as well. I, I didn't want I didn't want to interrupt you, Jamil, but I wanted to. There was something I wanted to mention, and I think I'm glad you said this. And I'll, I'll just interrupt briefly. The fact that there are two people in this speaker section now from two generations who have ha- had the same problem. Your father was 1964, if I'm not mistaken, was assassinated. 66, 66. So we're talking about this is this is decades ago. And you're now talking to somebody who had the same experience seven years ago, and it's the same country. So I think this is a very important note that none of this should be happening. I, I, I went to Lukman Slim's memorial. Your brother, Malik, was standing next to me. Uh, Russia, Lamir, and I don't know if she's still in this room. She, she attended briefly. Uh, Russia was standing next to me. Monica was also next to me. These are a group of people that should have nothing in common, yet we're forced to know each other through tragedy. So that I'm glad you mentioned this because I think it, it cannot be understated. This is a thing that is not normal, and it must end. And it's not taken out by... Uh, this is not just a simple crime that goes unpunished. It's a structural obstacle to the future of Lebanon. Anyway, I'm sorry sure. that I I'm sorry I interrupted you, Jimmy. Could you? Yeah. Could you tell us uh, who your brother, your, your father, who your father was? Uh, my father was a journalist, the founder of Al Hayat newspaper and the Daily Star newspaper. Okay. Thanks. And I think. I think probably the most, uh, I hope I remember this correctly, he invented the, uh, the, a certain type of typewriting uh, advantage for the keyboard. That's right. Yes. I, the, yeah. simplified, the simplified Arabic uh, keyboard that we now, all of us use. Well, there you go. <laughs> In Arabic, yes. Yes. Uh, I, will not, I will not have any hope with the, uh, spirit of the revolution. I have talked to many people who have participated. I have left Lebanon 10 years ago after 18 years of publishing and working on the Daily Star. I will not uh, relate back to Lebanon unless we answer those three questions. How are we going to pay for it? How are we going to, uh, to regain uh, our participation in terms of adjudicating our differences? And, of course, recognizing that we are in a very unstable area that we need to adjust to. This is that things are confined to their nature, the nature of this country and the nature of our area, requests of us, demands of us to genetically train our people, our young people, to, uh, 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 to, uh, to instinctively seek the balancing act. 
Thank you, Jamil. And I'll, I'll, thank, you, and, uh, I'll thank you, guys, and uh, good luck. I'd like to reach and out. We'll watch you okay. on Sunday. I'll reach out to you privately as well because Malik has become a friend over the years and uh, I don't think we've ever met in person. So I, I'd, I'd like to stay in touch. Yeah, certainly. I, had, I knew your father not fairly well. Not, not very well, but fairly well. Yes. Thank you, Jamil. You bet. Uh, maybe Rami Abu Dieb, since he's been waiting very patiently. <laughs> Let's see, Rami. Hello, thank you, Rami and Mike. I'm sorry for my English accent. Uh, I have. I, I, two I, I'm sorry. 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 I'm but the Cairo Accord uh, wasn't forced by Abdel Nasser. Uh, the issue was Andremo Eddy, which is also, which is also who, who was also a hero of Lebanon, who was the conscience, uh, said about, uh, wrote about it. Emil Bustani, who was the chief commander of the Lebanese army and who wanted to be the next president, uh, signed the, the Accord and um, he wanted to please Abdel Nasser, and Abdel Nasser was surprised about the commitment of Bustani. And uh, we are f facing also today the issue of the, what we can call the hybrid of sovereignty, the lake of monopoly, of legitimate violence in the hands of the state. And it's not something new in Lebanon. It, was, it is also um, a problem before Cairo Accor. Uh, let's remember what happened in uh, 58, the mini-civil war in the Shouf between Kamil Shamon and Kamal Jumblat. Kamal Shamon, who was the president of the Republic, uh, formed a militia in the hands of one of the year of the independence called uh, Naim Morabrab. And this mini-war uh, uh, brought, if you want, uh, the USA into uh, their first military intervention in the Middle East. So the issue was Jews and Maronites. And then, we, if, you, if, you, if we can talk, the Arabism and so on with Kamajan blood. Uh, now we have different issues. Uh, we have uh, Iran and so on. But even if we look back at the 19th centuries with Bashir Shehab, who was uh, the ivy of, uh, of the Egyptian. Uh, it was uh, Lebanon, um, the roots of the, the problem of Lebanon are really deep, and it's not only a matter of morale to say that Hezbollah is uh, the Iranian militia of Lebanon. It's really deep, and uh, the issue, for, for example, let's not forget what happened to Gibran Basile in the Alay region uh, two years ago. So uh, that's it. Thank you. Well, thank you, Rami. And I, I, I don't know what to, I mean, I'll only maybe comment on one thing, and I appreciate the, uh, the point about Nasser and Cairo, which is true, yes, but I think the larger point is that the sovereignty of the country by default ended as a result of that agreement. Whether or not there were Lebanese that supported it, whether or not Nasser himself was sort of second-guessing it. I think it's just the, the fundamental point is that this, this agreement did allow for regional conflict to, to live and thrive and eventually contribute 
to the breakdown of the state. And that was the beginning of our conversation. Okay, that Shamoun called up the help of the United States in 58. So it's only because, it's because of the nature of the regime and what called Kamal Jumlat, that every Maronite politician wants to be president. So uh, it's all, always a conflict on it. It's the nature of the regime, unfortunately. That's an interesting point, and I think that maybe adds to what Mike said earlier, that uh, maybe, these, maybe this is a symbiotic situation. But I, I would argue as well that the, the, tendencies to, to, the tendencies to turn to violence in this country were heightened, and the breakdown did not systematically happen until it became ungovernable. And I, I agree with you, 1958, yes, there was an uprising, there was violence, a brief civil war, if you want to go all the way with it, sure. 1,500 Lebanese, were, they died in several months. So yes, there was internal strife. But Lebanon did not completely collapse. And Lebanon did collapse in the 1970s. It didn't collapse in the 1960s. But I think that's maybe that goes back to what we were both saying, Mike and myself, that Yes, there is a systemic problem in this country, sure. I think also that you want to get there, you want to evolve the system to a place that is conducive and long-term and, and stable. I just don't see that happening so long as a country doesn't have sovereignty. But I won't go back to that uh, issue again because I think we flushed it out. But, but thank you, Rami. appreciate that. Mike, I'll let you, uh, I'll let you say anything you're very i'll say this now you're very kind to give me two hours of your time and it's the reverse situation that uh you were interviewing me so i appreciate it it's my first my first it's my first clubhouse it's my pleasure that you asked me to uh interview you um uh lately i've basically been living on clubhouse so uh I was here, you know, I would have been here anyway. Ah. It was a very, very um, interesting and insightful conversation. And, uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, and uh, I don't know if there's anything you want to say before we, uh, before we close the room. But, uh, you know, thank you, everybody, for sitting with us for two hours now. Yeah. I hope you, uh, you, know, hope you enjoyed it. I'll close off by saying the same thing. There are some names that I recognize, familiar faces, and, and dear friends as well. Uh, thank you for putting up with me on Clubhouse and on the podcast. So I appreciate anyone that, that listened and, and, and uh, tuned in to the conversation. And thank you, Mike, for doing these Clubhouse events about finance. I've been tuning in myself the last, maybe it's the last week. There were at least three that I, that I sort of listened into. So you're doing fantastic work. That needs to be said over and over. So thanks to you. All right. Have a good night, everybody. Ronnie, see you later. See you, Mike. Good night.